Chapter One of the Old Regime in Canada by Francis Parkman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Regime in Canada by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter One The Old Regime in Canada, Section First the feudal chiefs of acadia chapter one la tour and d'aunay with the opening of the seventeenth century began that contest for the ownership of north america which was to remain undecided for a century and a half england claimed the continent through the discovery by the cabos in fourteen ninety seven and fourteen ninety eight and france claimed it through the voyage of verrazzano in fifteen twenty four each resented the claim of the other and each snatched such fragments of the prize as she could reach and kept them if she could in sixteen o four henry the fourth of france gave to de Monts all america from the fortieth to the forty-sixth degree of north latitude including the sites of philadelphia on the one hand and montreal on the other while eight years after louis the thirteenth gave to madame de gaucheville and the jesuits the whole continent from florida to the st lawrence that is the whole of the future british colonies again in sixteen twenty one james i of england made over a part of this generous domain to a subject of his own sir william alexander to whom he gave under the name of nova scotia the peninsula which is now so called together with a vast adjacent wilderness to be held forever as a fief of the scottish crown sir william not yet satisfied soon got an additional grant of the river and gulf of canada along with a belt of land three hundred miles wide reaching across the continent thus the king of france gave to frenchmen the sites of boston new york and washington and the king of england gave to a scotchman the sites of quebec and montreal but while the seeds of international war were thus sown broadcast over the continent an obscure corner of the vast regions in dispute became the scene of an intestine strife like the bloody conflicts of two feudal chiefs in the depths of the middle ages after the lawless inroads of argal the french with young biencourt at their head still kept a feeble hold on acadia after the death of his father poutrincourt biencourt took his name by which thenceforth he is usually known in his distress he lived much like an indian roaming the woods with a few followers and subsisting on fish game roots and lichens he seems however to have found means to build a small fort among the rocks and fogs of cape sable 
he named it Fort Lomeron, and here he appears to have maintained himself for a time by fishing and the fur trade. Many years before, a French boy of fourteen years, Charles Saint-Étienne de la Tour, was brought to Acadia by his father, Claude de la Tour, where he became attached to the service of Biencourt, Poutrincourt, and as he himself says, served as his ensign and lieutenant. He says further that Biencourt, on his death, left him all his property in Acadia. It was thus, it seems, that Latour became owner of Fort Lomeron and its dependencies at Cape Sable, whereupon he begged the king to give him help against his enemies, especially the English, who, as he thought, meant to seize the country, and he begged also for a commission to command in Acadia for his majesty. In fact, Sir William Alexander soon tried to dispossess him and seize his fort. Charles de la Tour's father had been captured at sea by the privateer Kirk and carried to England. Here, being a widower, he married a lady of honour of the queen and, being a Protestant, renounced his French allegiance. Alexander made him a baronet of Nova Scotia, a new title which King James had authorized Sir William to confer on persons of consideration, aiding him in his work of colonizing Acadia. Alexander now fitted out two ships, with which he sent the elder Latour to Cape Sable. On arriving, the father, says the story, made the most brilliant offers to his son if he would give up Fort Le Meron to the English, to which young Latour is reported to have answered in a burst of patriotism that he would take no favours except from his sovereign, the King of France. On this the English are said to have attacked the fort and to have been beaten off. As the elder Latour could not keep his promises to deliver the place to the English, they would have no more to do with him, on which his dutiful son offered him an asylum under condition that he should never enter the fort. A house was built for him outside the ramparts, and here the trader, Nicholas Dennis, found him in 1635. It is Dennis who tells the above story, which he probably got from the younger Latour, and which, as he tells it, is inconsistent with the known character of its pretended hero, who was no model of loyalty to his king, being a chameleon whose principles took the colour of his interests. Denise says further that the elder Latour had been invested with the Order of the Garter, and that the same dignity was offered to his son, which is absurd. The truth is, that Sir William Alexander, thinking that the two Latours might be useful to him, made them both baronets of Nova Scotia. Young Latour, while begging Louis the Thirteenth for a commission to command in Acadia, got from Sir William Alexander not only the title of baronet, 
but also a large grant of land at and near cape sable to be held as a fief of the scottish crown again he got from the french king a grant of land on the river st john and to make assurance doubly sure got leave from sir william alexander to occupy it this he soon did and built a fort near the mouth of the river not far from the present city of st john meanwhile the french had made a lodgment on the rock of quebec and not many years after all north america from florida to the arctic circle and from newfoundland to the springs of the st lawrence was given by king louis to the company of new france with richelieu at its head sir william alexander jealous of this powerful rivalry caused a private expedition to be fitted out under the brothers kirk it succeeded and the french settlements in acadia and canada were transferred by conquest to england england soon gave them back by the treaty of saint germain and claude de razilly a knight of malta was charged to take possession of them in the name of king louis full powers were given him over the restored domains together with grants of acadian lands for himself razilly reached port royal in august sixteen thirty two with three hundred men and the scotch colony planted there by alexander gave up the place in obedience to an order from the king of england unfortunately for charles de la tour razilly brought with him an officer destined to become la tour's worst enemy this was charles de menu d'aunay charnizay a gentleman of birth and character who acted as his commander's man of trust and who in razilly's name presently took possession of such other feeble english and scotch settlements as had been begun by alexander or the people of new england along the coasts of nova scotia and maine this placed the french crown and the company of new france in sole possession for a time of the region then called acadia when acadia was restored to france latour's english title to his lands at cape sable became worthless he hastened to paris to fortify his position and suppressing his dallyings with england and sir william alexander he succeeded not only in getting an extensive grant of lands at cape sable but also the title of lieutenant-general for the king in fort lomeron and its dependencies and commander at cape sable for the company of new france razilly who represented the king in acadia died in sixteen eighty five and left his authority to d'aunay charnizay his relative and second in command d'aunay made his headquarters at port royal and nobody disputed his authority except latour who pretended to be independent of him in virtue of his commission from the crown and his grant from the company hence rose dissensions that grew at last into war the two rivals differed widely in position and qualities charles de menu 
Seigneur Dornay Charnizet, came of an old and distinguished family of Touraine, and he prided himself above all things on his character of gentilhomme francais. Charles Saint-Étienne de la Tour was of less conspicuous lineage. In fact, his father, Claude de la Tour, is said by his enemies to have been at one time so reduced in circumstances that he carried on the trade of a mason in rue saint-germain at paris the son however is called gentilhomme d'une naissance distingue both in papers of the court and in a legal document drawn up in the interest of his children as he came to acadia when a boy he could have had little education, and both he and Dornay carried on trade, which in France would have derogated from their claims as gentlemen, though in America the fur trade was not held inconsistent with noblesse. Of Latour's little kingdom at Cape Sable, with its rocks, fogs, and breakers, its seal-haunted islets, and iron-bound shores guarded by Fort Le Meron, we have but dim and uncertain glimpses. After the death of Biencourt, Latour is said to have roamed the woods with eighteen or twenty men, living a vagabond life with no exercise of religion. He himself admits that he was forced to live like the Indians, as did Biencourt before him. Better times had come, and he was now commander of Fort Le Moron, as he called it Fort Latour, with a few Frenchmen and abundance of Micmac Indians. His next neighbor was the adventurer Nicholas Dennis, who, with a view to the timber trade, had settled himself with twelve men on a small river a few leagues distant. Here Razili had once made him a visit and was entertained under attentive boughs with a sylvan feast of wild pigeons brant teal woodcock snipe and larks cheered by profuse white wine and claret and followed by a dessert of wild raspberries on the other side of the acadian peninsula dornay reigned at port royal like a feudal lord which in fact he was Dennis, who did not like him, says that he wanted only to rule, and treated his settlers like slaves. But this, even if true at the time, did not always remain so. Dornay went to France in 1641, and brought out, at his own charge, twenty families to people his seigneury. He had already brought out a wife, having espoused Jean Molin, or Motin, daughter of the Seigneur de Courcelles. What with old settlers and new, about forty families were gathered at Port Royal and on the river Annapolis, and over these Dornay ruled like a feudal Robinson Crusoe. He gave each colonist a farm charged with a perpetual rent of one sou an arpent, or french acre the houses of the settlers were log cabins and the manor-house of their lord was a larger building of the same kind the most pressing need was of defence 
and Dornay lost no time in repairing and reconstructing the old fort on the point between Allen's River and the Annapolis. He helped his tenants at their work, and his confessor describes him as returning to his rough manor-house on a wet day, drenched with rain and bespattered with mud, but in perfect good humour after helping some of the inhabitants to mark out a field. The confessor declares that during the eleven months of his acquaintance with him, he never heard him speak ill of anybody whatever, a statement which must probably be taken with allowance. Yet this proud scion of a noble stock seems to have given himself with good grace to the rough labours of the frontiersman, while Father Ignace, the Capuchin friar, praises him for the merit transcendent in clerical eyes of constant attendance at mass and frequent confession with his neighbors the micmac indians he was on the best of terms he supplied their needs and they brought him the furs that enabled him in some measure to bear the heavy charges of an establishment that could not for many years be self-supporting in a single year the indians are said to have brought three thousand moose skins to port royal besides beaver and other valuable furs yet from a commercial point of view dornay did not prosper he had sold or mortgaged his estates in france borrowed large sums built ships bought cannon levied soldiers and brought over immigrants he is reported to have had three hundred fighting men at his principal station and sixty cannon mounted on his ships and forts for besides port royal he had two or three smaller establishments port royal was a scene for an artist with its fort its soldiers in breastplate and morion armed with pike halberd or matchlock its manor-house of logs and its seminary of like construction its twelve capuchin friars with cowled heads sandaled feet and the cord of st francis the birch canoes of micmac and abenaki indians lying along the strand and their feathered and painted owners lounging about the place or dozing around their wigwam fires it was medievalism married to primeval savagery. The friars were supported by a fund supplied by Richelieu, and their chief business was to convert the Indians into vassals of France, the Church, and the Chevalier d'Aunay. Hard by was a wooden chapel where the seigneur dealt in dutiful observance of every rite, and where, under a stone chiselled with his ancient scutcheon, one of his children lay buried. In the fort he had not forgotten to provide a dungeon for his enemies. The worst of these was Charles de la Tour. Before the time of Razili and his successor Dornay, la Tour had felt himself the chief man in Acadia, but now he was confronted by a rival higher in rank, superior in resources and court influence proud ambitious and masterful he was bitterly jealous of d'aunay and to strengthen himself against so formidable a neighbour 
he got from the company of new france the grant of a tract of land at the mouth of the river st john where he built a fort and called it after his own name though it was better known as fort st jean thither he moved from his old post at cape sable and fort st john now became his chief station it confronted its rival port royal across the intervening bay of fundy now began a bitter feud between the two chiefs each claiming lands occupied by the other the court interposed to settle the dispute but in its ignorance of acadian geography its definitions were so obscure that the question was more embroiled than ever while the domestic feud of the rivals was gathering to a head foreign heretics had fastened their clutches on various parts of the atlantic coast which france and the church claimed as their own english heretics had made lodgment in virginia and dutch heretics at the mouth of the hudson while other sectaries of the most malignant type had kennelled among the sands and pine trees of plymouth and others still slightly different but equally venomous had ensconced themselves on or near the small peninsula of shawmut at the head of la grande bay or the bay of massachusetts as it was not easy to dislodge them the french dissembled for the present yielded to the logic of events and bided their time but the interlopers soon began to swarm northward and invade the soil of acadia sacred to god and the king small parties from plymouth built trading-houses at machias and what is now castine on the penobscot as they were competitors in trade no less than foes of god and king louis and as they were too few to resist both latour and d'aunay resolved to expel them and in sixteen thirty eight latour attacked the plymouth trading-house at machias killed two of the five men he found there carried off the other three and seized all the goods two years later d'aunay attacked the plymouth trading station at penobscot the pentagoet of the french and took it in the name of king louis that he might not appear in the part of a pirate he set a price on the goods of the traders and then having seized them gave in return his promise to pay at some convenient time if the owners could come to him for the money he had called on latour to help him in this raid against penobscot but latour unwilling to recognize his right to command had refused and had hoped that d'aunay becoming disgusted with his acadian venture which promised neither honor nor profit would give it up go back to france and stay there about the year sixteen eighty eight d'aunay did in fact go to france but not to stay for in due time he reappeared bringing with him his bride jean Motin, who had had the courage to share his fortunes and whom he now installed at port royal a sure sign as his rival thought that he meant to make his home there disappointed and angry 
latour now lost patience went to port royal and tried to stir d'aunay's soldiers to mutiny then set on his indian friends to attack a boat in which was one of d'aunay's soldiers and a capuchin friar the soldier being killed though the friar escaped this was the beginning of a quarrel waged partly at port royal and st jean and partly before the admiralty court of guienne and the royal council partly with bullets and cannon shot and partly with edicts decrees and procès verhau as d'aunay had taken a wife so too would latour and he charged his agent desjardins to bring him one from france the agent acquitted himself of his delicate mission and shipped to acadia one marie jacquelin daughter of a barber of mons if we may believe the questionable evidence of his rival be this as it may marie jacquelin proved a prodigy of metal and energy espoused her husband's cause with passionate vehemence and backed his quarrel like the intrepid amazon she was she joined latour at fort st jean and proved the most strenuous of allies about this time d'aunay heard that the english of plymouth meant to try to recover penobscot from his hands on this he sent nine soldiers thither with provisions and munitions latour seized them on the way carried them to fort st jean and according to his enemies treated them like slaves d'aunay heard nothing of this till four months after when being told of it by indians he sailed in person to penobscot with two small vessels reinforced the place and was on his way back to port royal when latour met him with two armed pinnaces a fight took place and one of d'aunay's vessels was dismasted he fought so well however that captain germain his enemy's chief officer was killed and the rest including latour with his new wife and his agent desjardins were forced to surrender and were carried prisoners to port royal at the request of the capuchin friars d'aunay set them all at liberty after compelling latour to sign a promise to keep the peace in future both parties now laid their cases before the french courts and whether from the justice of his cause or from superior influence d'aunay prevailed latour's commission was revoked and he was ordered to report himself in france to receive the king's commands trusting to his remoteness from the seat of power and knowing that the king was often ill-served and worse informed he did not obey but remained in acadia exercising his authority as before d'aunay's father from his house in rue saint-germain watched over his son's interests and took care that latour's conduct should not be unknown at court a decree was thereupon issued directing d'aunay to seize his rival's forts in the name of the king and place them in charge of trusty persons the order was precise but d'aunay had not at the time force enough to execute it and the frugal king sent him only six soldiers 
hence he could only show the royal order to latour and offer him a passage to france in one of his vessels if he had the discretion to obey latour refused on which d'aunay returned to france to report his rival's contumacy at about the same time latour's french agent sent him a vessel with succors the king ordered it to be seized but the order came too late for the vessel had already sailed from rochelle bound to fort st jean when d'aunay reported the audacious conduct of his enemy the royal council ordered that the offender should be brought prisoner to france and d'aunay as the king's lieutenant-general in acadia was again required to execute the decree latour was now in the position of a rebel and all legality was on the side of his enemy who represented royalty itself d'aunay sailed at once for acadia and in august sixteen forty two anchored at the mouth of the st jean before latour's fort and sent three gentlemen in a boat to read to its owner the decree of the council and the order of the king latour snatched the papers crushed them between his hands abused the envoys roundly put them and their four sailors into prison and kept them there above a year his position was now desperate as he had placed himself in open revolt alarmed for the consequences he turned for help to the heretics of boston true catholics detested them as foes of god and man but latour was neither true catholic nor true protestant and would join hands with anybody who could serve his turn twice before he had made advances to the boston malignants and sent to them first one rocher and then one lestang with proposals of trade and alliance the envoys were treated with courtesy but could get no promise of active aid latour's agent desjardins had sent him from rochelle a ship called the saint clement manned by a hundred and forty huguenots laden with stores and munitions and commanded by captain mouron in due time latour at his fort st jean heard that the saint clement lay off the mouth of the river unable to get in because d'aunay blockaded the entrance with two armed ships and a pinnace on this he had resolved to appeal in person to the heretics he ran the blockade in a small boat under cover of night and accompanied by his wife boarded the saint clement and sailed for boston End of chapter one